please remain standing. Our reading today comes from the book of John. If you are new to reading the Bible, that's in the New Testament, in the later half of the Bible. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So we are in chapter 5, starting about halfway through the chapter in verse 30, and you can follow along in the screen. These are the words of our defender, Savior, and King Jesus. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, family. Really good to see you here. Uh, thank you for joining us to worship Jesus this morning, and I hope you do stick around uh, after the baptism, grab some coffee and cinnamon rolls outside, and then come back, go home, get your naps for your kids, get your nap for Sunday, get your hair cut, that's your window. We're still sleeves up, right? Yes. Okay, roll your sleeves so you don't have to do that later, right? And come back and get some Blue Cafe, spend some time with your family. If this is your first weekend here, you're brand new to Okinawa, we want you here as though you've been a part of our family for uh, forever. So please come back. Uh, this morning, my son Johnny and I went out for a little run, uh, got to see the sunrise over Kadena and kind of the darkness dispelled over Okinawa. 
And um, the reality is, guys, all of us need the, the sun to rise in our hearts and dispel the darkness that is there. And God the Father does that for us in his kindness as we rehearse the gospel. Some of you are feeling that acutely because you're in, you're, your night was really dark and really cold and seemed to last forever or seems to be lasting forever. So let's just pause and pray before we open our Father's word and ask him to cause the sun to rise on our hearts. Father, we come to you needy kids, posturing ourselves with hands open, knowing we need to receive. Unfortunately, culturally, so many of us have learned that going to church is about what we have to offer and what we have to give. And while we do offer and we do give, it's all in response to what you have already done. And our greatest need is that you would pour out your grace through your spirit and cause the sun to rise in our hearts again this morning. So, Father, please accomplish that good work through your spirit. May Jesus be the hero of our time together. May we see him as our life, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. So we keep pressing through our series in John. If, if you're not already there because of Lauren's reading, please do turn there now. It, portions of it will be on the screen for you. John chapter 5, verse 30 through verse 47. And you know that our series theme all along is simply Jesus is life. He's my life. He's your life. Jesus is life. And our big idea from the text this morning is this. If Jesus is just and just who I need for my life, why am I so slow to run to him, refusing to believe? So a question for us to consider this morning, guys if this really is who Jesus is, he's just, and he is just who I need for life, why am I so slow to run to him? And maybe, maybe a secondary question that I don't have on the screen this morning, but you're coming in here bearing guilt and shame from this past week, perhaps for not running to him, perhaps for doubting his goodness rather than believing his goodness, perhaps from a week rather of running to your father, of running away to him, and so my question to you would be, how is Jesus postured toward you right now? How is he postured toward you in this moment right now? We're going to see his posture clearly in the text this morning. So we have two very important statements about Jesus made in this passage, that Jesus is just and that Jesus is just who we need for our life. Let me show you in verse 30 clear statement that Jesus is just. He says, I can do nothing on my own. Now remember, we talked about this last week. This is a head nod. Uh, if you look back up at verse 19, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. And we explored how uh, Jesus is just like his father. There is a mutual love between the two of them. And they're not on two separate programs. They're not in competition with each other. Same nature, same character, both God, both doing good work of bringing dead people to life. That's you and me. So he's just saying, I don't do anything on my own. Uh, I don't. As I hear, I judge. And what's he say? My judgment is always just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Guys, first statement, Jesus is just. And that's a really beautiful and hopeful, hopeful picture because all of the brokenness in our world is, to, is related to injustice. Injustice between us and our creator God. So it starts out individually all brokenness in your life is related to injustice. 
either because you have acted unjustly towards the God who has given you life or because another created being has acted unjustly towards that God and in so doing has acted unjustly towards you and so your heart has been deeply wounded by that injustice, okay? All brokenness in this world is an expression of injustice uh, expressed towards our creator God. It's, it's ugly. But Jesus is perfectly just, meaning he is in the process of restoring beauty out of our brokenness. And Jesus alone stands as just. Guys, I think if heaven could cry tears over us, we already know from the Bible that heaven weeps over injustices expressed on this earth. Whatever injustice it may be, whatever, any categorical injustice is an offense against God and a, a terrible harm to image bearers of God. He, heaven weeps over injustice. God hates injustice. He, he is justice and he loves justice. But you know, what I, you know what else I think heaven weeps over? I think heaven weeps over the argument that currently exists in the church, among God's family, over the beautiful reality that should be justice. Why is it so divisive? Why is it so contentious? Why... Why? Why are we so afraid to speak winsomely and beautifully of justice as though we're surrounded by Christians on the right and Christians on the left who are so ready to play whack-a-mole with your face and just beat you down? Guys, all justice belongs to God. The Father hates all injustice. God's family is called to celebrate justice, to advocate for justice, to be a voice for the voiceless, to weep with those who have experienced injustices. Jesus himself is just. I want to encourage you, for those of you who feel uncomfortable with conversations about injustice, we need to repent of that. And in a ton of kindness and with all grace, we need to own the topic because our Father already owns the topic. Justice is beautiful. It's not liberal, and it's not conservative. It's not left, and it's not right. And it should be the last thing that, would, that should divide God's people. Justice is beautiful. And Jesus, look, heaven is storing up judgment for every injustice expressed. Every oppressor will face God's judgment. And heaven stores up and will pour out mercy for every oppressed person who has experienced injustice. The day is coming if it won't be experienced now. This isn't a sermon about justice, but I just, I want to show you one really beautiful thing. Some of us get really nervous when the term systemic injustice is used. Can I show you why you shouldn't be nervous? Let me show you the root of all justice or injustice. Ready? It's right here. Look at what Jesus says. My judgment is just, and then he explains why. Why? Why is, his, why is he just? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The heartbeat of justice is a submitted posture to God the Father and ex an expression of love for him that then extends out to the people around us. That is when justice flows. So when does injustice creep in? When I am no longer postured in submission to, I'm not doing my Father's will, I'm doing me. I do my will. That's the starting point of injustice. So then you're like, yeah, but systemic injustice, it's such a liberal, like, um, we say all kinds of things about it. But guys, listen. If that's where justice starts, all systemic injustice is, is a collection of rebel people who have similar rebellion, so they're together in community, and so that injustice then is systemically expressed, 
in that community. That's all that systemic injustice is, and we don't have to be nervous about those conversations. We can be kind and winsome, and we don't play whack-a-mole with each other, and it's right here in John chapter 5, verse 30. It's beautiful. Jesus is just. So if he's just, and our world is so broken, why don't we run to him and to his word? Why do we run to a million other places, politics, or run away from, but we run so many other places other than Jesus. Why? Okay, but he's not just just, he's also just who we need for life. That's in verse 40. Verse 40 says, um, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In coming to Jesus, you have life. That's where life is found. So intellectually, we know this from studying God's word. How often this past week did we get out of bed and immediately run to Jesus for life? Gets embarrassing, doesn't it? And then we face hardship, we face trial, and in fact, we no longer run to Jesus, we run away from him to find life in other places or in other people. Honestly, we don't have to belabor the point because I think we can all share a collective sense of shame or guilt for, man, we just don't run to Jesus well at all. We say we believe he's our life and we know if we run to him, we have life. We're all runners, you're all, you may not run marathons, um, Man, my boy just ran an ultra marathon, dog. You're, yeah, wow. Way to go, Austin. So you did that this weekend. We're all runners. You've all gotten off the couch and run a 5K. The problem with our rebel hearts is every day we get off the couch and run, instead of running a 5K to our rescuing King Jesus, we run a 5K back towards our own heart or towards our own, you know, our own uh, expressed desires outside of Jesus. I guess you could call that systemic injustice. It's an injustice that we don't run to our creator. We share it in common, which would make it systemic. It's shameful, guys. So how does Jesus posture himself towards us? Well, he makes an interesting statement. Um, he, he's having a conversation with some religious leaders, and he actually says to them, look, if, if I showed up and I was the only one saying these things about myself, that I'm just, and that I'm just who you need for life, would be right in ignoring me and leaving me alone. In fact, their culture valued witnesses so much that a, a, a person was never allowed to testify for themselves. And if there was only one witness to a crime, the charges would be thrown out. There had to be at least two witnesses, and the more the better. So what Jesus is saying in verses 31 and 32, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying that he's lying. He's just saying, if I'm the only one saying this about myself, you don't have to believe a word that's coming out of my mouth. That's all he's saying. He's, he's agreeing with them culturally. But then he says, verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. When Lauren read for us, you heard the, wit, the word witness and testimony repeated over and over again, right? So we're in a courtroom scene. Here's Jesus. Here's a bunch of relig religious leaders. And now Jesus is going to call four witnesses into the witness stand. So just close your eyes. Imagine a witness stand filled with four witnesses giving testimony at the same time. And here they are. Here are the four in this passage. We've got John's witness. Remember John the Baptist. We've got the works of Jesus. We've got God's witness, which I'm going to call God's world, okay? Because I, I needed a different W word. And um, then we have the Bible, which we're going to call, we'll call 
the sacred word, okay? So another, another, another W there. So we have John's witness, Jesus' work, the Father's world, and the sacred word. And so he says to them, look, there was John, and you ran to John like he was this lamp in a dark night saying really good things, and you listened to him for a little while, and then you ran away from him. But we've already explored John's words, and they were very clear to us, right? God the Father sent John to kindly tell his people that you all have a rebel heart, you all need rescue, and Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't mince any words, and he called every rebel to repentance so that they could find life in Jesus. Jesus said you gave him a head nod for a little while, and then you turned and you left. You left him alone. I also like verse 34, notice this, Jesus says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Guys, that is Jesus stooping to our level. That is him condescending to us for our good. He's saying, I don't need a single created person to testify on my behalf. We've read that in the Psalms, right? Like, even if we were all to keep silent, who would cry out? The rocks, right? Jesus is fine with rocks. He doesn't need our mouths to be opened. The world will testify to his existence. But in kindness, he sends people like John to us, and he sends us to other people who aren't yet in the family, and he gives us the opportunity to speak a clear word so that people would know there is rescue and hope in Jesus. But then Jesus said, look, you had John's witness, but there's a better witness, and You don't have to take my word for it. You can take my works for it, right? Jesus has already demonstrated that the works that he performs, he works to bring dead people to life. That's the kind of work. So we saw him turn water into wine at a wedding feast, so to take what was a dying party and turn it into a life-giving party. We saw him give a dying boy life. Last week, we saw him heal a man who was lame for 38 years and restore his life. So Jesus' own works testify that he is the one that God sent to be our rescuer. But then Jesus goes on. He's like, that's not the only witness in the witness stand. He says in verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So even if John had never opened his mouth, even if Jesus had never taken on human form and said things and done things, God the father would still speak clearly that Jesus is our rescuing king. Now, Jesus doesn't elaborate how God the Father witnesses to who Jesus is, but we know from the Bible, we we know several examples. Um, John actually doesn't give the account of Jesus' baptism, but from the other gospel writers, we know that when Jesus baptized, the Father spoke from heaven, and what did he say? This is my deeply loved son. I'm so well pleased in him. And all, that whole moment, all the imagery around it communicated that the father had sent the son to be our rescuing king. He spoke clearly there. He's spoken clearly in the world around us. Guys, when, when, you, when the world is silent, like when you do get up at six in the morning to go for a run or you go at nine at night before you go to bed, whenever you're outside and it's silent, creation's never silent. It's always singing the song of the creator. So heaven, heaven cry, or the, the world cries out. Lift your eyes to the heavens. The stars cry out that there is a creator and there is a king that is over this entire world. In Ecclesiastes, we learn that the Father has placed what he calls eternity in our hearts. There is 
something about your humanity, your image bearing of God, that even though you may profess to be an atheist, though you may profess to be an agnostic, and if you do, I'm really glad that you're here and we are not your enemy. We are your friend and we would love to be your family and you are welcome with us anytime. We will not be hostile towards you or your beliefs or your worldview. But if you profess any of these agnosticism, atheism, or anything else, any other worldview rejecting our creator God, just know that in his design of you, he has placed in, uh, what, what we call eternity in your hearts. There is a self-awareness that there is, there is order and you are, there is purpose and there is something other that you can't see or explain or even feel or hear right now. The Father witnesses to Jesus. And that's not the only witness. Jesus goes on to talk about the word that we have. And look in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you, have, that you may have life. Um, now, if, if you grew up outside of the church or outside of, let's just say, an irreligious or non-religious environment, I don't know that this statement is for you as much as it's for those of us who grew up in expressions of Christianity that had a really high view of the Bible. And the problem is that high view sometimes became too high, so high. The way I like to explain it is, uh, so we know, we know the Trinity, right? We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the Bible testifies or tells the story of this Trinitarian God who creates us and pursues us for rescue. The problem is, in my kind of expression growing up, I still had God the Father, I still had God the Son, but our view of the Word was so high and our view of the Spirit was so low that we gave the third piece of the Trinity to the Bible, God, what I would say, tongue-in-cheek, God the Holy Word. And our view was, it almost... Almost like this became a magical book. Um, did anybody else grow up with Encyclopedia Brown books? I know I'm, I'm old. Okay, go right. We've got some old people with us this morning. Fantastic. Or just some, some high-taste literary people, because that is some highbrow literature right there. <laughs> Guys, that's how we, we treat the Bible, like volume intake. If I can just memorize, if I can just know all the books in order, um, if I can just accumulate this, the more Bible, the better that I'll be. We even see this culturally expressed very often. Here's one of the ways we see it expressed culturally. Um, we talk about the decline of our culture, which that's its own conversation. And what, in, at least in my circles, do you know what that decline was almost always attributed to? And I'll, I'll show you how this statement works. We attribute it to the Bible being removed from public schools. And then there are memes or gifts that are made out of this, right? It'll show a prison cell and it'll show a Bible in the prison cell and say, like, look how backwards we had it. If, if there would just be a Bible in the public schools, there would never need, be a need for a prison cell or a Bible in a prison cell, right? Um, it's not a magic book, guys. Its presence in a building among people does not do anything for the people in the building by its presence alone. And too many of us who have grown up in expressions that have given us a lot of good gifts, a lot of good gifts. Um, one of the ways that mm, something that it has done for us, though, is to give us, and I, some of you want to shoot me for even saying it, but too high a view of God's word. This Bible is not God. 
The Bible exists, Jesus will say, to point us to the God who created us and redeems us. It tells his story and it tells ours. So we need it and it is vital and we, we find life here. But he's saying, you search the scriptures to find life because uh, you're looking for the checklist of things to do so that you can have life and be alive. And he says, you're missing it. The, this story exists not to help you be autonomous from me as a good person, to expose to you your need that you are a rebel and your heart is inadequate and you cannot be who I've created you to be by memorizing a book or reciting it all back or anything like that. You need the author of this book to be the author of your life and to rewrite your rebel story and to make it a story of his redemptive work. And so Jesus points to this witness stand but there's a real problem here, guys. There's a real problem. Now I guess we have five witnesses because we have Jesus himself and his words. We have John's witness. We have Jesus' work. We have the Father's world, and we have the sacred word. All these five witnesses, but look at their response. Verse 38, let me summarize these for us. Verse 38, you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So they didn't believe Jesus. Let's keep track of these. They didn't believe Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So they refuse to come. Verse 42, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name. You don't receive me. Verse 44, uh, no, let's go to verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. But there, there is one who accuses you. So we stand accused. Moses on whom you have set your hope. So rather than setting their hope in Jesus, they set their hope on Moses. Now this is kind of a little head nod back to our conversation of the Bible. Um, obviously they didn't have the whole of scripture that we do, but they had uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and they had some of the early writings. They had the law of Moses. And so when, when he says your hope was in Moses, what he's saying is, You've read the scriptures and you've studied them diligently and you've placed all your hope and your ability to keep exactly what the Bible says and to be that image of humanity. That's what he's saying. You place your hope in Moses. And then he says the problem is Moses does not stand as your cheerleader. He stands as your accuser. His law exists to expose the rebellion in our hearts. You know, what Mo, you, know what, you know what made me think of, of uh, Mo, or what Moses' law made me think of this week? Where's the volcano that exploded recently? Underwater, right? Okay, so what are, what are our shores lined with right now? Okay, pumice. Is that good or a bad thing? It's a bad thing, right? Generally, it needs to be, it, it, potentially in greater volumes, it's really bad. Guys, Moses' law is that underwater volcano, we work to keep our beaches really clean in life. We project this great image. Beautiful. Look at me. And then below the surface, that rebel heart just blows up, right? Moses' law. And, and the fallout, the ash, the eruption is uncontrollable. I work to contain it and stuff it back down. The waves will always wash the pumice to the shore. Moses' law, this story, this narrative will always expose my rebellion and our brokenness and our systemic rebellion. It'll always expose. We share these rebel tendencies, though. I think we have them listed. Yeah, here we go. We have them on the screen. 
Guys, let's backpedal for a moment and acknowledge that it's so easy to read the Gospels and to read accounts like these and think to ourselves, how did these religious leaders not get it? It's incredible. They had the word, they had Jesus in flesh and blood, like Jesus himself walked up to them. John the Baptist, in all his craziness, walked up to them and talked. They had the scriptures, they had all these witnesses. How could they miss that it was Jesus? Why didn't they run to Jesus? Why did they run from him? I don't know. Why don't you run to Jesus? Why do, you, why do I run from Jesus? Am I any better than the religious leaders we're reading about here. Are you? We're not. And that's the point of the story, guys. Not that we would have this nice Sunday school story. All right, that would be the Jesus point of you've searched the scriptures for life. So we read the story and we're like, God, man, thank you that I'm not like those people. Thank you that I saw who you really are and that I, I ran to you. It's a beautiful story. No, guys, their story is our story. Here are my remaining rebel tendency. So I was just like them before Jesus rescued me. But if you want to explore the root of your volcanic eruptions in your heart right now, here, here they are. Here are all the roots, and Jesus brought every one of them up. Seven days a week, I have a heart that doesn't want to believe Jesus. And what I mean by that is I doubt his goodness. I doubt his love. I doubt his purpose. I doubt. I, I doubt. I, I don't believe Jesus really is who he says he is. Uh, that run this morning that I took Johnny on, I'm like, hey, we're going to do a mile, a uh, real quick mile. We're going to go here, bang a left, go by um, Ken's Auto Parts. We're going to bang a left at Family Mart. He's like, it's a loss. His dad is not a Family Mart or whatever. I had it backwards. But at every turn, he's like, I told him the destination. I said, we're going to end up at the park. But at every intersection, he's like, dad, the park's that way. I'm like, no, but we got to do a mile. He's like, all right. So we keep going. We come to another intersection. He's like, dad, the park's that way. That is, that is a child's heart not really believing the words that are coming out of his daddy's mouth, doubting the way that his father is taking him home. Yo, is that not our life? Okinawa? That's not the way home, dad, right? That's not the way home. When hardship hits our lives, dad, this is not the way. Dad, if you loved me, why would I be going through this? Guys, that's us. We tend not to believe. We don't readily come to Jesus. Like we know he has life, but we run a dozen other places first. We taste a little bit of life from each of those places, enough to sustain us for a day. Then it all comes, the house of cards comes crashing down. And then we're like, I should probably run to Jesus. I don't stay in the love of my father. You're coming out of this week, laden down with guilt and shame. And so you're sitting here thinking... Dad's pro my father's probably not happy with me right now. He probably, he's probably questioning his decision to let me into the family. I'm not a good Christian. He, I've got to go to church to pay some penance. Uh, I better reaffirm my love for him. Uh, let me sing some songs, take com some, some communion. Maybe I should be rebaptized at some point in the future just so the father knows he loves me. I mean, I love him. So we don't stay in his love. We don't rehearse the father's love for us. We don't receive Jesus the way that we should. And guys, man, we don't set our hope in Jesus. We set our hope in circumstances and other people and ourselves and our own accomplishments and our own ability to obey this book rather than allowing this book to point us to the one who obeyed in our place and gives us rescue. We are these people. So where's the good news of the gospel? Verse 45. And let's start wrapping this up. Verse 45. That's also the good news of the gospel. I'm going to start wrapping this guy up. Verse 45, 
Do not think. So what's Jesus' posture towards you right now? You have a week laden down with guilt and shame where you've not, you've not believed, you've not run after, you've refused him, all the things. Your hope's not been in Jesus. How is Jesus postured t- toward you? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father because that's what you're thinking right now. You think Jesus is accusing you to his Father. Zap him, judge him, crush him, kick him out. He doesn't belong. She is a terrible daughter. Don't think that I accuse you to the Father. Now, We don't need Jesus' accusation because the law of Moses, it exists in and of itself. We're already accused, right? Every one of us are legit accused rebels, unjust towards God, unjust towards his image bearers, and collectively as populations around the world, systemically unjust towards each other. It's the human condition, guys. We stand accused. And Jesus looks you in the eye and says, now don't, don't leave here thinking that I accuse you to God the Father because I don't. Jesus descended and took on human form and rather than accusing us, he accepts us as the rebels we are. Why can he do that? Because he takes all of the justice that we deserve and all of the judgment that we deserve and he goes to the cross and he takes it in our place so that we can be accepted sons and daughters by faith in the work of Jesus on our behalf. So he does not accuse, he accepts, and then Jesus takes our accusation with him to the cross. Do you realize that's the gospel, guys? You're accused. Jesus walks to you and says, now give me your accusations. The accusations leveled against you. He takes them to the cross and they become his accusations that nail him to the cross and he serves or fulfills the justice in your place. That's the gospel, okay? So rather than accusing you, he accepts you, he takes your accusation to the cross, and then he becomes your advocate. Jesus looks at you and he says, do not think that I accuse you to the Father. Jesus rather would look you in the eyes and say to you, I advocate to you on your behalf to the Father. And that's where Jesus is right now, and that's where Jesus was all week in your rebelling, advocating to the Father. Like, here we go again, Dad. It's a good thing I went to the cross and took all of those accusations so that he could be an adopted in son. It's a good thing that I perfectly satisfied justice so that she could be a forever daughter, fully loved, forever kept, and fully forgiven. And let's close with this, guys. This story paints a picture of us that we don't believe, we don't come to Jesus, we don't remain in the love of Jesus, and we don't receive him. But while we weren't coming to Jesus, who was coming to us? Jesus was coming to you. You refused to run to him, so what did he do? He took on human form and he ran to you. That is the beauty of the gospel. And while you were not remaining in the love of the Father and you had no love for the Father in your heart, in love, at just the right time, Jesus died for his enemies. That's you and me. So while we were way outside of our Father's love, in love, Jesus dies in our place. So all of the things that we failed to do, Jesus did perfectly in our place. Ron's going to come now and lead us in a response in communion. And man, I just want to encourage you, let's sit under the truth-telling words of Jesus. Don't make them about somebody else. These words are leveled at us. We stand accused. But here... The kind words of Jesus, I do not accuse you to the Father, I advocate for you.